Today I welcome Michael Alkusteiner, Head of School at Durham Academy in the United States. In this episode, I discuss service learning and community engagement, defining outcomes for private schools with public purpose, teaching as a leader, and why vigour, not rigour, is important. I spoke with your friend and former colleague Lee Hark last season. Judging by your YouTube fame, you two are quite the comedy duo. How did this come about? And tell my listeners, what is this? <laughs> it was a ridiculous lark. We're the Milli Vanilli of school announcements. It was honestly just an effort to bring a little bit of levity to a, an icy, cold, long week of school delays and frustration for parents and teachers and students. We were all stuck inside. I called Lee and said, you want to do something fun? We'll make the kids laugh. You have something wintry, grab it. I had my son's ski goggles. He had a Philly sweater and uh, we thought it would make a couple hundred students laugh, but uh, it had legs, went viral and pulled us into a flash moment of fame. It was, uh, it was a fun trip and uh, fun cementing of our friendship as well. He's one of my closest friends and uh, glad you had the chance to talk to him. Have you got sequels? Because it's always difficult when you do something like that. It's like, is there a secret to this? Could we do it again? Have you tried again and it hasn't quite hit the viral scale? I'm sorry you've done your research because yes, I'm embarrassed to say we did try. Follow-up hit, Lice Lice Baby. So the first one took us 15 minutes to write and tape. The second one was effortful, lyrically complex, critically reviewed very well, and a total dud. Nobody cared at all. We tried to jump the shark and we should have just let it be. You got to keep trying. No, you, you don't. You don't, Simon. It's better for the universe if we just. Well, I suppose it's just going, well, who's it for? And actually, if it's for your school community, I think you should be doing it every single year, to be honest, because they're the ones that like the authenticity. They like the fact that you're showing some vulnerability and being a little bit different. You're not showing the veneer of an austere nature of being a, a head of school. So I do think that your community would love to see you every single year doing something. But I'll let you think about some ideas maybe that can work. I do think it grew from a place that the culture of our school, we are serious about what we're doing and we don't take ourselves too seriously. One of the three missional goals of the school is happiness. And it's a 52-year-old mission. Uh, Moral, happy, productive adults are what we're trying to raise. And I think we do take seriously what's behind happiness. And a part of that is surprise and whimsy and fun and recognizing that we're a school full of children, not forgetting about that. I mean, you talk about happiness. I was, I was having a, a conversation with other guests about happiness. And, you know, happiness is, do we strive for happiness? And is, is it easily quantifiable or should we be seeking joy? It's such a good question. In fact, so I teach a class, originally taught it with Lee on morality, happiness, and productivity, those missional goals. And among the things we discuss is the difference between happiness and joy. Joy being perhaps deeper, more sustaining more permanent and intrinsic and happiness being related etymologically to happenstance. And just depending on the day or depending on the way the wind is blowing, we might be happy or not. We've tried to reclaim happiness and really dig into what we know about it. And we know so much more than we did when the mission was written in terms of happiness psychology, some basics like sleep and hydration and wellness and the more sophisticated pieces of connection and purpose and relationships. So we actually behind me and In all of our classrooms, we define those missional words. And with happiness, we believe it's about engagement and curiosity and balance. And joy is the last word of that definition. I don't know if you can see it. That dialectic of just talking about these words, no word is going to perfectly capture it. But we like the historical ballast that that mission gives us and think it was prescient of those trustees 50 years ago to think about mental health 
and wellness and thriving, which is not, of course, just academic. It's got to be holistic. It's thriving and it's purposeful. I have this conversation with my kids all the time and, and other educators, you know, what should we be teaching purpose and what is purpose? Should we all be cut from the same cloth, go through the same cookie cutter education to a kind of off the peg life in a generic kind of way? Or how do we actually define someone's purpose? I mean, do you look within the, how you, you run your models to look at purpose as well? I've probably gone further with this in my class than anywhere else where we certainly think of it as individualized. And I don't think it's fair to ask a 15-year-old, what is your passion? I think that's a, a silly question. We all come to that passion by iteration and experimentation and, and signing up for causes that we care about. And then that forms us. We actually are digging into this quite a bit with a, a group called Authentic Connections, with student wellness surveys, with trying to really understand and move our curriculum too toward more relevant, intrinsically motivated, historically relevant, and personally relevant work. Knowing that students just tend to learn better, work harder, produce better quality products when the work matters to them. That's a big part of our curriculum reform effort right now. And a lot of it is based on this sense of what does human thriving look like for a 25-year-old, a 45-year-old, not just the end of the year assessment or the end of the high school matriculation to college. And that's a hard thing to change because it's been around for so long, but there are many schools that are doing this, you know, curriculum redesign. I love your, the language you use just about, you know, purposeful, but how do kids thrive? You know, how do you define? It's exactly what you want. You know, I, as a parent of four, I always said it's happy, confident and curious, but then I got challenged on happy and actually I do want my kids to have joy and joy soulful. But I want to talk about service learning because service learning and community engagement are important fibers of your school and leadership. Why do these matter? Well, I'll start where we finished there. I think relevance and purpose includes not just solipsistic academic work for oneself, competing against others, consuming and regurgitating knowledge. It has to have impact in the world somehow, eventually. And that impact can start with preschoolers when they have a connection at our school. It's to a retirement community right across the street. And they're art and their singing and their work is sometimes viewed by audiences that are real and have real impact and really care about that work. I was involved in the founding of a service learning organization in college that opened my eyes to the purpose of this work. I was good at school. I enjoyed school, but I realized that it wasn't actually preparing me for the real world outside in that some of the EQ skills and code switching and work that had to be done to really stand in the shoes of other people wasn't served by the regular university experience. So that and some work that we did in founding a college access program here for public school students just helped me see that we have to be preparing students for the world, for the big world, and that the end of learning isn't just knowledge, it's action in the world. So I think on a tactical level, that comes in all kinds of ways with field trips and experiential education and global travel. But I think at the heart of it all is preparing students for life and not just more school. Is that an easy thing to measure? How do you bring that alongside your leadership? Really hard to measure. It's a lot of anecdotes. It can come in fits and starts, and it's a less efficient way to quantify progress over time. And of course, it's side by side with that progress in things like writing and literacy generally and numeracy and public speaking and all the skills that we have, we know our students are going to need forever. Again, it has to be student product and measuring their work, measuring the outcomes of their work, not just their ability to perform in a narrow place that's an artificially constructed environment, but are they building relationships? Are they moving 
the needle on not just for themselves, but for some other group or team. You're right, though. It's hard to quantify and it doesn't look the same from project to project. So you can't compare rank order in the way that we've done with um, straight up skill assessments. And is it important to role model? Because, you know, as a leader of a school, but also your leaders, your teachers, is it important for us to role model this kind of behavior? Because if we want our kids to understand it's important to the world and to them, we should do it too. And is that embedded in what you do at Durham Academy? Sure. You sound like the father of four children. I think so much the eyes are always watching and they're watching our actions as well as our words. And they're watching the architecture and the economy that we build for them. And if that economy is about the acquisition of knowledge and the individual performance, students will play that game. If their game is to build themselves so that they can build the world better or repair the world or just build, be in, in relationship with the world, I think they'll take those paths. What initiatives are you undertaking to achieve this at Durham Academy now? So historically, we've got a good history of being an incubator for community-engaged projects. The biggest, most conspicuous of these is Hill Learning Center, which began as a place for students who are struggling with the curriculum. So diagnosed learning disabilities and attention disorders, serving our own students. And then it became its own independent nonprofit, serving thousands of students all over North Carolina with its reading interventions and math interventions. They still have a half-day school right across the street from us with 175 students who attend 70 different other schools. So it began in this very boutique-y, over-resourced private school, but now serves a lot of under-resourced learners and teachers all over the state. And I think that model has been repeated a few times with a few different pieces, other nonprofits that have gone independent and then other projects. So we're always looking for those kinds of things, reciprocal relationships with other strong nonprofits and government agencies around the triangle. Uh, We're in the Raleigh-Durham, Chapel Hill triangle of North Carolina, and there's all kinds of good resources, great universities, great research, and people with all kinds of needs. So dialing up to those communities, really listening. In recent years, we've done a lot of design thinking, and those begin with asking questions and doing empathy interviewing so that it's not just noblesse oblige, this Durham Academy students coming in to fix things, but really listening and trying to understand the world. And maybe if there are opportunities for reciprocal give and take, then digging into that. And again, that can start really early. Our lower school has partnerships and projects that are substantive and embedded in the curriculum with the Ronald McDonald House, Sea Turtles Hospital, with Book Harvest, a literacy group here. And so I think it's a big part of the student's curriculum. What perceptions about private schools do you need to tackle to kind of make it, as you say, it's not we're wealthier, we're a bit more entitled, a bit more well-off, and we're going to show you how to do it because we believe we're right, because we have the resources. Public purpose is beyond that. Tell me a bit more about what that statement means about striving to be a private school with a public purpose. Yeah, I think some of our schools, and we at some times imagine that it's we're ahistorically plopped into the world with the resources that we've earned and deserve. The fact is, We're a historically white school. We are a disproportionately wealthy school. We have opportunities and options that other children in the triangle don't have. And our response to that ought to be to strive for excellence here, to be as inclusive as we can with our students. Our school is 45% students of color now, something that's changed dramatically over the last three decades. And then creating graduates and even graduates of third and fourth and eighth grades who are prepared to work with the world surrounding our school and to acknowledge that we've got all kinds of advantages. And if this 
social capital that we have at Durham Academy isn't used for good, if we're just consuming in Durham and beyond, then we ought to not be in business. If we're producing graduates and other relationships and impacts that are positive, that's part of our mission. We're uh, founded in 1933 and have uh, our 100-year anniversary, our 100-year centennial on the horizon. The impact of Durham Academy in the larger city is something we think about quite a bit. I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. Many independent school leaders continue teaching. You've mentioned that you still have classes. Why is it important for you still to be in the classroom and teaching students and not being the leader and outside and administrative and visionary full-time? I think it's such an essential advantage of independent schools in the States that the tradition is for principals and heads and administrators to teach, even if just a little bit. And I can't claim to be really in touch with the day-to-day realities of teaching four or five classes. But I love the teaching and I had to give it up for a few years during the pandemic. I'm glad to be back and doing it. I've taught Spanish and English and TOK in the IB program when I was abroad, now teaching this class on morality, happiness, and productivity. You're just being in tune with the realities of our students who are changing so quickly and so delightful and unique each from the other. But I think just being reminded on a daily basis of the rigors of teaching, it's a challenging job and uh, it's easy for administrators to forget that. So, And you enjoy it. Again, there's a connection with the reason you got into teaching in the first place. And I do speak to many you know, heads of schools and the administration burden is almost too much. And you yourself have lost that love of learning and that reason for getting involved. So I completely get it. And maybe that's what we should be doing. I think should heads of school be more of a mandate that it's like being on the shop floor. You know, the only way you're going to learn things in any organization is by going back to the coalface, back to the shop floor and seeing it and reconnecting. Feels like a privilege. Most of my administrative colleagues do it. It's a joy and it feels pure. It'll, I hope it'll be my last act in independent schools when the school gets tired of me in these administrative roles. I'd like to be teaching and coaching for a long time. The British tradition of calling a headmaster, and my job used to be called a headmaster 15 years ago, the roots of that are still true that we ought to be the lead teacher and teaching ought to be a piece of that. Durham Academy prefers vigor over rigor. What does vigorous education entail? So I'm an etymology geek, and I think rigor signifies stiffness, uh, affiliated with rigor mortis. Vigor connects to many of the things we've talked about before. If our goal is human flourishing, then it ought to be vital. It ought to be full of life, full of energy, enthusiasm, purpose, and not just externally imposed rigor. There's a place for rigor, and we don't say that we're not giving a rigorous education, but I think it's worth reminding people that what we want is vitality and zeal and energy in the enterprise, not just in the product and celebrating our hard work, but the work itself ought to be joyful. We're defining that now in all the ways that I referred to, trying to make the work more intrinsically motivated, more relevant to students' interest and to the real world as it is for them now and as it'll be in the future. So I think vigorous education is more nimble, more innovative, more flexible in the way that it prepares students for futures that we can't script. You know, it's still a rigorous school, but I think we like reminding people that to keep the bigger at the core. And do parents understand this? When you change a 
an obvious word for something that's more challenging, disruptive, maybe more, more modern forward thinking. Sometimes the audience don't quite get it. Is it something that you spend time making sure that the parents understand? And is it embedded as part of what you do? We struggle with this in so many ways. I think schools do always. Schools, the only place, the only industry where everybody already did it. We all know what school looks like, feels like, what it should be, whether our experiences were good, bad, or ugly. We know what it's supposed to be, except that our views are 20 or 30 years old and the world has changed quite a bit. So we do struggle with that. I don't know that we always get it right, but I think it is having more traction as people understand how dynamic and ambiguous the world is that the education ought to look differently. Even before chat GPT and some of these other really scrambling innovations, we knew that our school would have to look different. So I think our parents, particularly in this area, so saturated with educators and researchers and doctors and folks who've made their lives learning and service often, they tend to get it that education ought to be more transformational, less transactional. And some of that is the same theme of vigor over rigor. And you used the word obvious, which I like. I think we should be scrutinizing all these assumptions and looking closely and thinking about the purpose, structure of the buildings, the structure of the curriculum. How do we do our daily, weekly schedule? Not doing anything pro forma or because we used to do it, but really thinking, is this the best? And also to avoid navel gazing, it sounds good, it's different, aren't we great because we've come up with a, a different way of educating because the consumer, it needs to be consumable and your end user, your stakeholders, your prospective families need to absolutely get it as to when you're recruiting teachers, you'll be recruiting teachers on exactly the same foundation values that you have on your board behind you, but also with this notion of vigor, not rigor, and they got to get it. As clever as things can be, it is really important that it's authentic and it's lived and you can show that to who you're going to speak to. You mentioned about ChatGPT. That's been mentioned, I think, in all of my podcasts the last month. I think it's phenomenal and I just don't think we should be surprised that this has happened. I think education is always like, oh, God, <laughs> you know, we're, we're always surprised when technology comes in and we're kind of like a little bit behind. I've started asking all my guests this as a kind of a wrap up to the podcast. I want you to look into your crystal ball and give me your thoughts on what the future of education might look like in 2050. The crystal ball is opaque in the external world. I don't think we can anticipate the rate of change. We knew that there would be tech bio integration, and that's probably the next big wave of integrating chat GPT and chips that we and our students will all have. But I think that's a 10, 20 year horizon. And so I think what we can predict is what the human body, mind, soul can handle. And we who educate four-year-olds to 18-year-olds know that the learning capacity of our students, their emotional regulation, their ability to make sense of the world is a much slower evolution than the technological and labor force and economy evolution. So where those two meet is preparing students with a basic set of skills, which I don't think will change to be able to think critically, interact with others in productive ways, present in writing, speaking, images, telepathy, maybe by 2050. Those are going to be important skills, as will all the pieces of emotional wellness to be durable. We're seeing it already in colleges that colleges want students who can be self-sufficient, durable, persistent in their efforts. The external world and the examples and the work that students will be able to do will be a churning mess for the next 30 years. And so our stance has to be knees bent, eyes open, ready to embrace and leverage things like chat GPT and not wall off and, and block, which uh, some schools have moved to do. 
But that's just the beginning. As you say, we better buckle in for this kind of future. That's really what's behind some of the moves that we began at our school 10 years ago, talking about the need for this kind of flexibility. So the future's hitting us in the face very quickly. And I think that's going to be the norm. You can connect with me on Twitter, Instagram, and via LinkedIn. Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.